The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 180, as they say on the darts. I think that'll be for European listeners only. This episode and podcast is sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, then sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the oneouter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash oneouter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on oneouter.com website and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, did you get the 180 reference or not? I'll be honest with you, it took me a second, but I did eventually get it. It's been a long time since I watched darts. How you doing, Barry? I'm good, I'm good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is the darts. I didn't know how big it was in uh, America, but I know you're a well-traveled individual and a well-read man, so I, th- I thought that you would get the reference. <laughs> it, it, I don't know where that where I heard that. I think, actually, I know about it from you talking about it. That's the only time <laughs> I've really... Oh, you know who it is? It's uh, James Opst, uh, the Australian pro. He talks about darts a lot because there was a big, uh, there's some guy in darts that speeds up his pace and then the other, his opponent will speed up his pace at the same time and then the initial guy has much more experience in that format compared to the other guy and it's a tactic that he uses and it comes up in tournament poker, but yeah, that's the very, very briefly I learned about darts. But yeah, honestly, I didn't catch it that much. Anyway, that's the last time we'll ever be talking about darts on this podcast ever, guys. So hope you enjoyed it. How you doing, Barry? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But I don't think it will be the last time we talk about darts. <laughs> I think. I think now that I made that challenge, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's the last time we'll be talking about darts because I was going to say. I think it's like snooker we've talked about before. It's one of these individual sports where, you this know, it's, it's got a feel like, I think, what poker was like back in the day, like traveling to these events and stuff. And when people talk about poker becoming a big spectator sport, I think they probably really need to look <laughs> at aspects of darts and snooker. Mm-hmm. I don't think poker will ever be a spectator sport. I think po- poker is... You have all these games that are more individual-oriented, such as backgammon, chess, snooker, darts, and I think right above that is poker, Mm. because poker has the aspect of anybody can win, it's exciting, there's a lot of money on the line, but right after poker is the lowliest sport. I, I don't, whatever sport you can think of that's the most boring, if there's a hint of athleticism in it, I think it's going to always be more of a spectator sport than cards is going to be. Just because 
people go to spectator sports to see something they think they could not do. Yeah. If we're watching something, that's why nobody likes modern art for the reason that everybody thinks, you know, if I got hammered enough one night, I probably could get this done. And there's a lot of times you're watching poker players play and you think, you know what, if I banged my head a few times against this wall, I think I could play like this guy. And that's not something that's exciting to watch. But I do think poker's going to be around till the end of time. I think poker is, there's going to be thousands of professionals probably forever now at this juncture, just with the invention of the internet. I don't think poker's ever going away. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess a fairer comparison I think we've touched on before is chess and who the hell wants to go and see a chess tournament. Exactly. A a very select group will be interested in it. Well, there's so much more technique and skill and invention in chess and people still don't watch it. I read about chess because I'm always looking for plays that I can poach and apply to poker, something that my competition won't get a hold of, likely is buried in one of those books written about Soviet-era chess masters. But at the same time, nobody goes to a chess match yeah. <laughs> ever. And it's so funny to me when people talk about how difficult poker is, and then you read about chess. There's literally entire books dedicated to one chess opening, and there's 50, 60 really well-recognized chess openings to start with, and they all have books written about them, and then there's hundreds of others that are offshoots of that, and that's before you get into middle game play. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here saying, hey, guys, when you see that, make sure you fold out those ace highs because traditionally they're going to have ace high or worse 45 to 50% of the time, and everybody just throws their papers in the air and goes, this, this map, it's too complex. I can't figure this out. Like, <laughs> this, this, is, uh, this is too much, Alex. Can't we just go play cards? And that gets me thinking. I think we're going to be here for a long time, Barry. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you in terms of the spectator sport because it's guys like even me at peak poker interest was, you know, I was watching all the shows, etc., I sort of got into a little bit last year again. I watched some of the WSOP coverage, the main event. I bought the year subscription for Poker Central. I watched a couple of the sort of biographies, which are really interesting. Nick Shulman, Mercy, etc. They were really good. But in terms of like walking, watching through like past episodes of Poker After Dark or anything like that, it's just not there for me now. And they were, you know, the best. I mean, I, I think you could watch old episodes of High Stakes now for entertainment in terms of the table chat and the characters and remember, you know, a bit of nostalgia. But there's things, I get email alerts like, this is on, you know, this high roller's on today, this high roller's on tomorrow. And I'm like, nah, I can't really be bothered spending any time watching it. Exactly. There's something to... I think once you become inside the poker industry, I don't imagine many professional basketball players watch basketball once they get back to their hotel room. I would assume most of them turn on South Park and fall asleep when they're on the road. And once you're in poker, I remember when I was in high school, I had VHS tapes 
of recorded WPT episodes because there were long periods of time we didn't have cable or anything like that. And, uh, uh, oh, my first world problems. No cable. No cable in the United States. It was terrible. But I had all my uh, recorded episodes, and I would just re-watch them start to finish and watch guys like Paul Phillips, Gus Hansen, in the characters, uh, Eskimo Clark, I remember being at one of those final tables. You remember Eskimo Clark? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just so many plays that it was so funny. They would say, this is a terrible play, and you look back and you go, now that we have all these equity calculators, you can run the hand and go, oh, Eskimo Clark was clearly just pissed off with that guy at that hand, but he still did a profitable play that nobody was doing at that time because it just wasn't kosher. And there was nobody who was a more extreme fan of poker than I was. But once this becomes technique all day, every day I'm looking at technique, every day I'm hammering things to a point that is a nauseating degree, just all the little peculiarities. I've run more three-bet simulations than anyone on God's green earth probably could have. I've looked at more hands than anyone. And when you watch these guys, it, it goes back to what Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about in Fooled by Randomness. A lot of these guys, uh, they, they attribute their success to hard work and their failures to variance, I think is how he puts it, right? And I am fine with people playing poker, and making mistakes, but I do not want to watch it. I do not want to watch your biography where you tell me how hard you worked when I'm watching you play and I see little thing after little thing you don't catch, you don't care about. The thing that bugs me is they don't care. They do not care about the... A lot of guys just fire out their seabed and every single time it's half pot. Have you ever noticed that on these... Uh, have you ever noticed that on these TV shows? Just every single seabed is half pot some episodes? Have you ever seen that? Mm. It's a meh. Or no, I, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, I, I've probably not even paid attention that much to what their their seabet is. You know, like you know when I'm watching these shows. I get it. I get it. Well, it's the same thing when I watch baseball. I'm not clocking every pitch, right? I'm not saying like, oh, that was a fastball. That was a curveball. Because you're watching it for entertainment. You just want to see does this guy hit this ball? But. If you're a pitcher, like that's what you do is every day you go out to the baseball diamond and you're throwing pitches and you go out there and you see a pitcher who literally throws nothing but a fastball to the right wrong part of the plate and he just gets strikeout after strikeout because of randomness. You're going you're gonna to be very bored by that very quickly. Now, if you watch a Maverick, uh, I watched the final table where uh, Martin Jacobson, the year he won, that was a fun final table to watch. I was really taken by his composure during every hand. Uh, there, there are times, though, it's definitely worth it. It's just there's so many guys that just randomly get in there. And sometimes how much turnover are there in those high-stakes tournaments? There's a lot of guys that don't last for more than a year or two. So a lot of the times I think they're just putting forth their team's worth of game theory on the game and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and when it works I'm just supposed to assume it's a terrific idea but you get the Germans out there like when I watch a lot of the German players play like I love watching Dominic Nietzsche play like that's a guy if you watch that guy play and you try to break it down 
later on, you go, oh, that was cool. I didn't even see that. And who was another guy back? Watching Tom Dwan was always really fun. Uh, back on the old high-stakes poker, not just because he would talk a little bit, but if you grabbed a copy of Flopzilla and you did the combinatorics, you'd see, oh, there's a, there's a reason he does all of this, because he only has this many combos, and he's doing that. So, yeah, there's value in it, but I think you have to look for it. And if you're not really looking for it, it's not like a physical... It's not like a sport, right? You don't need to know anything about so- football, not soccer, Barry. Sorry, forgive me. I'm so American. But you don't have to know anything about football to when they're coming down the field and they're passing it between each other and setting up that perfect goal to go, wow, this is impressive. <laughs> Whereas a guy bets and no limit hold'em or wins it all in, everybody thinks, oh, I can do that. Yeah, and actually I was just thinking there when we were talking about it, I think that you even mentioned it there. The key is people can go out and play poker and enter these tournaments. They're opens in the sense they're true opens if you put your money up. So, mm-hmm. you you know, it's like watching uh, football, soccer, not American football. It's like, <laughs> it's like watching football and thinking, you know, actually if you put up 2K, you can come and play, you know, in this team or whatever. The fans would rather play, so poker can be played by them all, even in the high stakes tournaments, you know, bankroll dependent. So, all right, even if we went to the World Series, there's like 1K and 1.5K bracelet events and stuff. So they can compete in these tournaments and go and play them. So I think that's what poker's got and like gratefully got. Like you can actually, instead of watching, you can participate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's. The other thing I really like about poker is if you and I play at the table, Barry, despite my 25,000 hours of training or whatever it is, you're still going to beat me four days out of ten. And I actually think that's really special about poker, which is if you were playing snooker, if you were playing pool, and you were a hustler, you'd have to give away a game or two on occasion. And that gets really burdensome. If you... Barry, you grew up in casinos and stuff like that, like I did, right? Mm-hmm. You, yeah, it's, you, you would watch like the old sharks or like at pool halls and stuff like that. And it just, to me, it always struck me as so exhausting to give away a match and to not do it in a way that nobody knew what you were doing. The casual, like, uh, okay, let's go up to, you know, uh, let's make it 100. Let's make it interesting, right? That always seemed to me like such a grandiose production, and it always felt slimy. Mm -hmm. And in poker, I never have to worry about that because I just, it's built in. The other thing is you really have to fall in love with the characters in the game. I really loved playing cards in Laughlin, Nevada, because it was a bunch of old retirees. And they were just the funniest, sweetest people on earth. And I found I played really hard at them, but when they won a pot from me, I just had no anger at all because it was like, ah, uh, you know, like he, they're a nice person. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, it, you know, it, it'd be like if an old lady took a pot off me, I'd be like, oh, okay, whatever. She's going to take her kids to the movies, right? She clearly doesn't get liquored up or anything. I'm fine with that. So, with that in mind, I've 
I'm trying to find ways just to love poker players more because I find I don't I, I, I find that when I try to respect my competition more it's much easier to handle the four times out of ten I lose and the funny thing is if you go in with the attitude of like these are adults these are people that are playing a game for fun you'll kind of change the situation to that. You'll find mo- most of these people are way more respectful than you first... Perhaps if you came in like, I'm the king poker player of them all, right? You're not going to get that attitude out of anybody. And if anybody is being rude, that's usually just a sign of insecurity, and you can kind of ignore that pretty quickly. I find that poker players, at least in the United States, too, are getting much more polite. It's becoming more enjoyable to go play cards. I find people are less... I remember a couple years ago at the Venetian, I had a guy just calling me a mother effer and standing up and pointing at me. And I got the idea he lost a lot of money at the roulette table there, so nobody really could say anything. But I haven't had anything like that happen to me in a couple years. And more than that, people have been fairly kind and if you can get to the point where it's like you know what i know i'm gonna win this game eventually i'm just get this is just me letting a game go as if i were a pool hustler when i run queen jack and an ace jack on a jack i board with 20 big lines like who cares uh i i find that's when the game really becomes enjoyable but i think many pros have to we have to work on recognizing the only reason we have a job is because they're opens and because people can get on the field with us and maybe tackle us in a way that might break our ankles on occasion or get us, get us into some dangerous situations. And we have to, if we're sparring with yellow belts, as my friend put it, if they hit us in the crotch, it's on us. Yeah, and that's what life poker, you know, I remember... Last time I was in Vegas, I played some cash at the Golden Nugget, and the table was great fun, really, you know, mixed bag. There was a a lady there, you know, probably 70-plus, I'd want to say. Isn't old Las Vegas the best? Oh, yeah, yeah. The characters down there are just brilliant. And there's, like, waitresses going around who are, like, you know, came first in Dolly Parton, lookalike competitions and stuff. They're, like, (laughs) 60-year-old, the hair, the makeup, etc., and then the table, this one guy sat down, and he was probably 30s, sunglasses, um, some uh-huh. sort of flat, you know, cap that was some sports team or whatever, and oh my god, you know. And of course he flopped set over set against me and got to look like a, a you know, a pro. And it was just, I really wish it had been the old lady that took, you know, took my money. Right. I just remember it. And the guy was so, like, his attitude towards other players and everything. And that was the last trip where I was there for my brother's wedding. So I didn't play much poker. I just played some cash. I didn't play any tournaments. And what I played, it was just, oh, that was, uh, you know, when he came to the table and started, it was just, I was like, yeah, this is why I kind of don't like playing, like, sitting in this situation anymore. And then um, I played at night, where was it, Excalibur. Uh, cash games in there, right up there, and that There's was great. That, I haven't heard in a while. Sorry, Go that ahead. was that was great fun. There was like lots of guys, you know, and the game was good. It was you know one two, but there was plenty of money on the table, and it was uh-huh. guys just gambling, and you know there was a few, 
definite sharks there. There's a couple of Asian players that were like really good who I, you know, obviously pegged straight away that could play. But then the other guys were just guys there gambling up, you know, sticking in with anything, you know, any ace, whatever. And um, yeah, it's like so. As I say, I'm going away there in ten days, so I'm looking forward to. I will be playing a lot more poker this time. I'll pretty much that's all I'll be doing. Uh, that and eating. Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what the the tournament fields are like now. I'm going to go and play. I've got to play some of the dailies or the nightlies at the Rio again, and um, I'm going to play. I think a couple of events at the Win as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the the average field, you know, that you've talked about a lot as well, how they're playing and and, and what their attitudes like actually is more important for me because I like to sit when I play live. I I like to talk to people and you know, it's, there's nothing better than when you get someone you can chat to and you know talk about interests and stuff. And I've met some interesting people, you know, at the poker table, and um, I'm just hoping it's not. You know, eight sets of headphones and stairs on the second level. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing I just love playing poker. That's that's the thing to me is being in casinos and talking to people. Like you really just reminded me of that, which is people forget you're supposed to be playing a game. Like if you go down to a basketball court to play pickup basketball. If you're the one guy elbowing people in the middle of a pickup game, you're kind of a jackass. And we don't assign that social stigma to the guy in the sunglasses. And it's really profoundly selfish to show up there and ruin the game for eight people. Like, I don't... I love the people watching at poker tables. I, I don't know what it is, but when I'm thinking about the game now, I really, I think just because I have so many competing thoughts now in my head uh, that I'm not talking as much as I used to because I'm thinking a lot about, okay, how is this different from this game or this game or that game I studied and yada yada. But I do get to observe the table and I'm not exactly being the best for the game, right? But I don't have sunglasses on. I used to wear sunglasses. I never wear sunglasses. And if somebody makes a joke, I'll politely laugh. And if somebody beats me in a pot, I'll say, nice hand, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll try. And that's all it really takes. And I really wish we demanded that of people more. I, what do you think of no sunglasses rules at the table, Barry? Yeah, I'd be fine with that, you know. I only wore sunglasses when I first started playing after a year or two, and you think back, like, what a dickhead, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I played, I used them in bigger events where it was like, I'd been playing £50 and £100 buying tournaments, so like my first 500 game and a first 500, I played because thinking, you know, back then it was like, there are going to be players here who you might give things away to and stuff, and like, so let's try it, there's nothing to be uh, lost, you know, from from doing it. And then I think, well, actually, there is your face. You look like a fucking dickhead, mate. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, but I was young and stupid. So, yeah, I would never wear uh, sunglasses at a poker table now. Um, I, you know, I, I say never. I think the only time I really would is if, if you made it to some like final table where the lights were like ridiculously bright and it was uncomfortable or you felt a bit like that, then maybe I would. But in terms of playing, you know, any tournament, you know, if I sat down to 
uh, play any tournament in the in Vegas, I will not have sunglasses on. I'll have sunglasses on outside, but I won't have sunglasses on uh, at a poker table. And I will hand fifty dollars, no, a hundred dollars, to anybody that sees me wearing poker, uh, <laughs> we, uh, wearing sunglasses at a poker table. It's going to be really funny if you make the WCP main event final table with Daniel Negrano and you just have to pay 100 bucks to everybody who sees you with the sunglasses. <laughs> well, I said, I, I said uh, final table with uh, bright lights or that. If it was uncomfortable, I've never been at a TV oh, okay. table, so I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know, you know, but I sometimes, you, you know, you get a bit hot and bothered when it's like that, so I might, I might put sunglasses on in that situation. But any other time, no, I don't, I don't see the point. I used to, the reason I used to wear those Jennifer Lopez clear sunglasses is because they're clear, because I hate wearing sunglasses because you have to pierce your eyes to see the board, and then you get a headache after a couple hours, so I'd wear those super dorky John Jawanda glasses, because honestly, the reason I always wore glasses is I wanted to look at the people to my left without them knowing I was looking to them, so with those glasses... You would, if you had your head at a normal angle, they were just clear, and then they didn't do anything to your eyesight, so you wouldn't get, you would not get a headache. And then it was really nice at final tables because it would, if you tilted your head, it would get the lights out. But if you tilted your head downward, nobody could see your eyes. And then I would look to my left and see if there was somebody really impatiently waiting to fold and get back to their cell phone or their rail, or if they were just trying to. Not let th- not let me know they were holding their buried treasure there, just hiding their aces or whatever it is. But then I figured out, like, if you watch Michael Mizraki at the beginning, he used to wear those same kind of glasses, and I'm convinced it was for the same reason. He was looking to his left. But there's a way to do it. You just kind of act like you're stretching out your arms, and you look around a bit, and you'll see everything you need to see, especially once you're better at chunking and going, okay, this look means a little bit more like that and things like that. By the way, this came up in American football, too, is the funniest thing. In American football, you would, uh, uh, it, when you're a lineman, okay, Barry's going to have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, but this is for the uh, American listeners. When you were, I played left tackle. If you were setting up a cross block, which means, Barry, you're jumping off the line and hitting someone you're not supposed to hit normally, uh, the other guy, you can't look at the guy when you set your feet because then he knows it's coming. So you'd have to come up with a tactic to like look around like you were setting a specific way and then get where he was and hope to God he didn't shift. It's really weird. Something I did as a kid over and over and over again on a football field still comes up in poker, which is the you go from the most violent sport on earth to the wussiest game on God's earth, and it's still the same thing. But yeah, I I don't like the sunglasses. I don't I don't like the head. I, I don't I wear my headphones, but I never have music in them. It's just I don't want to listen to everybody at the surrounding table screaming <laughs> about you know Ace 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 right yeah. and I the thing I I really wish there was a no sunglasses rule, and I really wish. I don't know how you would regulate it. I think we have to start, as poker players, we have to start policing it ourselves. My my new thing is smiling and saying, are you put upon, bro? Like, is that, are you put upon right now? Is this a, is this a problem? 
Like, is poker this tough? Come on, poker's fun. What's up with you? Right? And if you make it sound like a joke, a lot of guys will light up, lighten up, right? But the words put upon sound, I'm sorry, but it, it sounds a little, it, it, it's, it, I, don't, I don't know how to put this. It, it sounds a little less than masculine, right? So if you tell a guy you look very put upon right now, that's not a chain of words most men would use to ascribe another male they care for. But you, sometimes you'll get them to snap out of it. Sometimes they just double down on it. And I guess that's why I'm never in love with playing at the Rio. It, if, you go to, if you go to downtown Las Vegas, like you said, there's all these old characters there's the guys who wear sunglasses with one bullet hole in them or whatever. And <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen that, Barry? Yeah, I've seen stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. There, you get guys like that in downtown Las Vegas. And if you go to play at Hollywood, it's a bunch of tourists. Uh, I remember one time I showed a guy I was folding queens pre-flop, and the whole table just, you know, ripped apart just having fun with it. Like, oh, my God, you folded that. And they were like, how would you fold that? You're a good player if you can do that. They were just, But they were just laughing at him. And the guy went, oh, and then he showed Ace King, so he got me, right? But he wasn't being vindictive. He was having a fun time. Like, look, I got away with this one. Whereas if I do that at the Rio, it's going to be like, nice fold, bro. And I'm thinking, like, that's fine with me because I have a big, nice, healthy, strong ego by the way, I've seen your backers' financials. I know you're broken to the next century. But if I were a casual player from Ottawa who had flown down here just to play some cards with the knowledge that 30% of my money was going to be taken for taxes by a country that's not my own anyway, and you treated me like that, I'm never coming back to this casino again. And sure enough, that's what I think has happened at the Rio a lot of the time. That in the Rio treats us as if we are never, ever, ever going to change casinos. And in a sense, they're right, because everybody wants that stupid bracelet, right? Like everybody, like you're going to wear it on the Vegas Strip and walk down the streets, and people are going to go, hey, that's the guy with the bracelet. Look at him. There's the important person. I know. How many people have got bracelets now that you don't... The, the main ones are like the race, you know, Helmuth and Ivy and stuff. You just look for a little bit of spectator, you know, to see who, who has the most. Like, they hand them out. How many a, a summer now, you know? Yeah, well, the other thing is, I always have... My, my students always tell me, I want to... Actually, it's one of the things I look for when I'm screening people for where I, whether I want to teach them or not, if they say, I love the challenge of the game, I love playing the game, it gives me a little high uh, going head-to-head with somebody mentally, that's somebody I want to teach. If somebody says, I want the bracelet, I found it's kind of an uphill battle. But one of the things I've always asked is, I go, why do you want the bracelet? And they'll go, it, it'll prove myself. It'll prove this is all worth something. I go, do you respect Phil Helmuth? Well, no, not really. Phil Helmuth has 12 of them. So you thinking that people are going to respect you with one of them doesn't really hold water if we go through all of these answers that you just provided to my questions. Yeah, yeah. They can probably pick them up in pawn shops in Vegas now quite cheap as well. 
<laughs> I should do that, and I'll just walk around with one. I, it's like buying your own Stanley Cup. It doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah I got, I got a bracelet. Yeah, I got a bracelet. It's, a, it's one of those things. I if think Phil as well has got fourteen bracelets now, just for uh, yeah, just in I case mean, he writes I, in. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> you know what? If he did write in, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be thinking, you care. Uh, you, yeah, you, yeah, of course. You, yeah. If Phil Ivey wrote in, I'd be confused. But yeah, I go, who is this? You know. But uh, the thing I was going to say, I do you think great martial artists walk around with their black belt on? <laughs> do you think great martial artists tell everybody I've got a black belt? No, the whole point is it's just the same reason. I don't think Steve Jobs or Bill Gates ever said I'm an entrepreneur at a cocktail party, right? When they introduced themselves, they probably would have said, I create things. I, I, I'm trying to create something with my company. Or it would be something probably fairly down to earth like that. Because if you really are that person, you should know that about yourself. You shouldn't need some governing body, some piece of hardware to prove that about yourself. It's nice, don't get me wrong. If you want numbers, go get numbers. They're they're fun to get. And it's certainly, I think it should be a recreational thing. Like, when I go out to play a tournament, I always look at the trophy as, oh, that'd be so cool, right? Like, I'll bring that to my gym and we'll all kind of joke around about it. Or when I was going deep in WPT Montreal at the last few tables, I was thinking, God, I am going to walk around with that WPT belt for a month if I win this damn thing, right? I'm going to go into the coffee shop with this thing, right? And, but it's supposed to be a fun thing. It shouldn't be the be-all, end-all. And I feel like a lot of people support the Rio just because they want that hardware, right? They're not supporting the Rio because the Rio treats them so well this they really wanted that, quite honestly, they should go to the Venetian. I, I know a bunch of dealers from the Venetian. They're really nice guys. Uh, they give you free coffee. You can charge. Uh, your. It, they were one of the first to have the tables where you could charge your cell phones there. Really nice chairs and all those things. Whereas, it, where, whereas uh, the Rio, it's just like, here's a bar stool and be lucky that three of the chair legs are still on it. Feel yeah. lucky. <laughs> so, sorry. Okay, I guess we should do some questions. Yeah, let's, let's do the questions. Um, okay, this one is from Max. Hello, Barry and Alex. My question is about live tournaments. I have a good cash rate, but final tables, not so much. I have made final tables, but I usually go out in fifth place or worse, sometimes thirds, but very few firsts or seconds. From this sort of finishing style, what would you take from it and advise me how to finish better? Thanks. Hey, Max. Uh, I'm really glad that you kept track of this just because it helps me answer your question. But one of those things I want you, one of the things I want to talk to you about is also remember whatever sample size you have in live tournaments, it's not enough. It's Remember, we talked about the fictional card room a couple episodes ago where you spend five days, three days, building up from 1, 2 to 200, 400. As you can imagine, you can only do that a few times a year or 10 times a year if you're lucky. And 
I've looked at databases where people play the equivalent of every tournament every day at the WSOP for 800 years and still run bad. So one of these things is I want to talk about is a lot of times this is variance. So if anything I say in the next few minutes doesn't sound like you, it's likely just because you're running a little differently now than you would if you were able to play thousands of tournaments like this. And I, I do think this is an argument for playing online poker if you just get a chance to. Uh, that's the, the money on, like when I play 10 20 $30 tournaments on America's Card Room, it's, the money's nice if you get to the top notch, but really I just do it to play tournament poker and to go deep in a tournament and to do that all within the span of a few hours so I can get some practice in. And anywho, generally when I find guys that cash quite a bit, there's two things we always talk about this on this show. The two biggest payout jumps in a tournament are going from zero money to cashing and going from second place to first place. If you can get through those two more often than most people, you're going to make more money at tournaments than you deserve to. So usually what ends up happening is the guys who finish first place all the time are the ones who... On the bubble, they go, I don't care if I bubble, right? I'm going for first. Well, those min caches add up to a lot of money throughout the year. If you're deep in uh, the WSP main event and your chips are worth $3,000, if you average out how, much, how many chips everybody has and what they're worth, and your min cash is going to be worth $14,000, then it's probably the best it's in your best interest to stall. It's not something that purists really like, but it, if we're talking just straight equity, you have to stall. And you probably shouldn't open that ace-eight suited from the hijack. That's probably a hand you've got to fold right now. And you probably shouldn't rejam ace-jack offsuit on the button versus an under-the-gun plus-two opener that's opened two of the last three times they're there and you didn't see the hand. Because, yeah, it's probably profitable, but if you min cash, you just tripled how much that stack is worth. And that's a big deal. Now, usually people fall in one of two categories. One, they don't care at all about the min cash. And then they just throw it off. And that adds up to, you know, 55 bucks here, 150 bucks there, $600 there. That adds up to $20,000 at the end of the year or whatever it is. Especially if only half the time you were min cashing and you just toss it off. It's not going to be working out for you at the bottom line by the end of the year. But usually the same people who stall to get into money don't really take care of anything afterward, which is you're trying to get to first. And the way to get to first is to first get down to the final six or five with a decent stack. That doesn't mean you have to have a chip lead stack. It doesn't mean you have to take crazy risks. It just means you have to be aware Right after the bubble bursts, everybody's going to go, oh, my God, I'm free rolling. Everybody's all in every hand. So you've got to be really careful about what you open uh, and because everybody's going to be jamming constantly. And hopefully you have a few chips that you can call some all-ins, but you have to recognize many times probably what's happening to you a lot of the time is you're either race folding a bunch right after the bubble bursts or you're race calling, you're just losing a few flips, which, by the way, you can play five or six tournaments where you just lose a couple flips, and that's that. And if that's all you're going to play all year, that's what you're going to think of your entire game when really it's just some variance. Now, 
if you get to final tables constantly and you have a mediocre stack and you end up going out fifth or sixth, nine times out of ten, that's what that means is right after the bubble burst, uh, all the short stacks either bust or double up, and then you get into what I think of as the second dogfight in the tournament. The first dogfight is right after the annies kick in. That's when all the quote-unquote pros start saying, like, look, you know, look, watch me nestle watch me nestle into my hoodie and pierce my eyes at you while I open and show what a sick player I am. You should just be three-betting their ass constantly because if they just flat you out of position, they, they do not play – they don't know how to fight cards. They're giving away their money, right? They're just giving away their money. You, I don't care if you go bust in that tournament or the next ten. They do not know how to fight cards. If they're just raising six-four suited and calling you out of position – the second dogfight is after all the short sex busts, shortly after the money, and that's when every pro has to show what a badass they are and start opening again. This is the make-or-break moment. You've got to be three-betting constantly going after these guys because, again, nobody deep in a tournament live wants to be seen four-betting something stupid. So what they're going to do is flat you out of position. Every time somebody flats you out of position with a mediocre hand, you have just manufactured a big blind spot. You think about it. Why does nobody make money from the big blind? Because they're, uh, it's a forced bet out of position with primarily mediocre hands. When somebody calls you out of position and you know they would afford that their aces, kings, queens, jacks, tens, ace, king, ace, queen, what they're telling you, but you, know, you don't know if they're folding their six four suited or these ridiculous hands are ace, ten offsuit. What they're doing is you just manufactured a big blind spot, a huge big blind spot, because it is a forced bet out of position with mediocre hands. And nine, time, nine times out of the ten, I gamble on those guys to choke, and they choke. They don't know what to do. They do not practice that situation. That is one of the things we work on the most in my classes because nobody knows how to approach it. They either fold every single time somebody three-bets them or – they call every single time somebody three bets them. There's very little finesse. There's very little material out there. It's one of those things you're probably not making a big mistake if you flat out a position, but you're still losing money on the hand. You just don't lose as much as if you outright fold. And instead of going to the beginning, asking yourself, why am I opening ace-10 off under the gun plus two? Why am I opening seven-five suited under the gun plus two? They just continue to open and flat out a position and give you that spot. You need to be three betting with small pairs. You have to be three-betting with suited two-gappers, one-gappers, suited connectors, the big Broadway cards. These are my big winners. The suited aces I'm not in love with because you tend to fold out the smaller flush draws and the smaller uh, suited connectors and big card combinations that would make inferior pairs, but you get a lot of the superior aces to call. So you've got to be three-betting. You've got to be accepting most of these tournaments you're going to finish 33rd, 42nd, 45th in, but... It doesn't matter because most of the time, if you just hold on there, you're going to be doing what you've already been doing, which is just finishing 21st, 19th, 11th, right? And when you do get to a final table, you don't really have much of anything, so you hold on and you finish like a 5th or 6th. The payout jump between 49th and 22nd isn't that big, but the payout jumps between 49th and 2nd or 3rd or 4th is significant 20, 40 times. That is what you're aiming for. That is your goal. And that is my guess is what you're missing, Max. Good luck to you. Okay. And this one, that was very passionate, Alex. I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's energized me. <laughs> okay, this one is from Andy. Hey, I have a question for you guys on the show. When playing cash games in the casino, 
Is playing ABC tight aggressive poker still profitable in games in Vegas and AC? Taking it to the extreme and run turnover over bluffs. I'm not sure what that is. Um, taking it to the extreme and run turn or over bluff river bluffs. I think it is. I think it's his autocorrect. But allow for high percentage of C bets when I miss completely. I was playing last week and I think it could be profitable. My river bluffs always seem to get called, especially my big ones. Hey, uh, thank you for your question. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I haven't played cash in AC or Las Vegas in a while. I think the last time I played cash was a year ago in Las Vegas uh, when I was there. My first question is, why do you have to play in Las Vegas or Atlantic City? Because games just drop off. It, I, I was uh, looking at a live database the other day, and it was something like the VPIP of the average player at 1-3 was 46% or something along those lines, and raise first in was 8%. So if you can imagine a table where everybody's running uh, 46-8, that was the live table they were at. And if you go out to Vegas, what you're generally going to find is there's a lot of nits there, and there's a lot of... Uh, what I think of is just pot controlling. I'm, I'm not going to say the real word that went through my head because it's it's very. I I have a lot of disdain for the guy who calls themselves a professional poker player and just raises a super nitty range, hits a pair, and then goes check. And uh, don't the worst thing that could ever happen to me is if I is if you bluff me. If you bluff me, I'm a terrible player. Like no. No gumption, no direction, no conviction, no ability to get value from a hand. And unfortunately, in Las Vegas and Atlantic City, at least in lower stakes, when I do play there, there's a lot of those guys. So, no, you're not going to bluff them on the river. You're not going to bluff the typical player on the river because human beings are terrible at accepting a loss. Uh, the average human being, when posed in, uh, when they do simulations – are when they do gambling experiments at universities and they say you can either accept this small loss or you can gamble and go for this big loss or this big gain, 80% of humans will always gamble, right? And that, that goes on the river. A, a person has a time investment, an emotional investment. They've been with this hand for a couple minutes. They threw in their preflop raise. They flatted the three back. They called on the flop. They called on the turn. The average person, eight out of ten of those people, are not going to be folding on the river. So, yes, you're asking, will an ABC game work? Yes, but do you want to be that person? Uh, uh, one of my students' wives, she plays... Her, her bread and butter, her meat and potatoes is aces, kings, queens, or jacks. Now, she makes money at the game. So just so you know, 95% of players can't even figure out that strategy because 19 out of 20 of them don't make money at the game. But she, she makes money from those hands. But I think even she would admit, hey, if I opened it up with a few more combinations, I'd probably be making even more money. And I don't think you want to stake your earning power just on ABC poker, because if ABC poker really got you great riches, then I'm pretty sure everybody would be quitting their job at Amazon to go play cards in New Jersey. But that's not the case for a reason. I think, in my mind, it's augmenting 
whenever a poker player says they're picking their spots, well, nine times out of ten, I think people are just saying that because that's what everybody says, and it makes you sound cool. But what it really means, the one guy out of ten who knows what he's talking about, what he means is he picks up on who's opening too much at the table. There's usually one or two people that limps a little too much, opens a little too much, and they try to maneuver for position on that person. If you're playing cash, uh, if a seat opens up like two to their right, just making up some BS excuse, I mean two to their left, excuse me, making up some excuse like, you know what, I don't think this table's lucky, haha, or this, uh, this seat's lucky, haha, moving over to that seat, or like, I like the angle of the TV a little bit more from this spot, and then just trying not to, doing the Negranu thing, the older I get, the more I respect Negranu, or the Negranu I saw growing up on all those TV specials. Barry's been more familiar with him the last few years, and uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's said some different things than I've said uh, about my... But I liked how he would just go like, oh, I got a raise here, I got a good one, right? Which was good because it lets the person know you're not picking on them. But truly, if everybody else is playing a very tight strategy and making two big blinds per hundred hands, three big blinds per hundred hands, all your money is coming from the one losing player who's negative six, negative seven, negative eight. If you can get half of those big blinds that that person is losing and your win rate is normally five big blinds per hundred, now it goes up to eight. Now it goes up to nine, right? And if that's the person who's giving money to the table or one of the three people that's giving money to the table, that's the guy you got to be right next to. And generally... You, you're, when you're looking at your hand and that person opens or that person limps, you don't want to get – everybody has – they ascribe these values to hands overall, right, which is something bad investors do on Wall Street. Like, oh, I don't want to do this with a tech stock, right? And it's like, well, not all tech stocks are bad just because that one thing happened, right, that one bubble happened. That's – and a lot of people do this in poker. It's like, I hate King Jack offsuit to an open. It's like, okay, but what if this guy's opening Jack six suited? There's a lot of times in Vegas when I've played, I, I don't know how I'm doing against everybody else at the table. A lot of them are those sharp Asian kids that are really bright, and I like their bluffing frequencies and whatnot. But what they don't, what a lot of these guys don't have that because they're sitting there for 14 hours a day and they're kind of grinded out of their mind is they're not going after the one person who's giving away all their money. So I, I didn't know how I was doing versus a lot of those people, but they were playing tight aggressive anyway and they left me alone. And the one losing player was two to my right and I just kept being able to isolate that person. And yeah, it, it was essentially augmented, augmented ABC play your value hands, play your value hands. Well, in taking advantage of what you were talking about, which is most people don't fold on the river. So if the board, let's say I threw that King Jack offsuit and uh, the, my mark called and the board comes Jack 7-3, I'm really thinking of how can I get that river bet because any river bet is going to be significant. Now, if I think I'm going to go half pot, half pot, half pot, and on the river that half pot bet is going to be 20-something big blind, then I don't think this person is mentally prepared for that. Then maybe on the flop I go, one-fourth pot. Maybe I go 30% pot, right? And then they go, oh, sure, Pali. Okay, I call. Then you go half pot on the turn, and then you go half pot on the river. And yeah, it's not 20 big blinds. It's 14 big blinds. But they call anyway. 14 big blinds is my win rate for the next three hours. I just got that right there. And a lot of that locking up value, recognizing top pair is a great hand versus that person, and accepting that once in a while that person does have a freak ace-jack 
then you have to give them a little fist bump and say nice hand. If you can do that, I think you'll make money in at cards in Las Vegas, in Atlantic City, anywhere in the United States of America, anywhere in Canada, as long as you avoid the best casinos, the best games, and don't move up too high. Good luck to you. Okay. And do you want to do one more question this show or keep it for the next? We are doing back-to-back today. Yeah, let's yeah. keep it for the next, Barry. Okay, we'll keep the next one for the next. Okay, uh, thanks for all the questions that came in today. Much appreciated. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for information on your various webinars and products that you have for sale? Write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com if you guys have questions about anything or if you want to sign up for my newsletter, which every single day comes out with a, almost every single day comes out with a new strategy article, a new podcast, a new video. I just did an hour-long lecture that came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, All that stuff gets sent to you pretty much every day from my newsletter. If you can't figure out how to sign up for that newsletter, just write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com and I'll sign you up myself. Or you can go to pokerheadrush.com and go to the top right and sign up yourself. Pokerheadrush.com is kind of my fun little blog if you want to check that out. And uh, follow me on Twitter at the Auto and follow me at YouTube uh, at Assassinato Coaching. Oh, check it out. I just got another series done for Tournament, tournament Poker Edge. Uh, which is coming out soon. For So take a look at that. Write me at alex at com if you want to sign up for that site. I can hook you up. Take care. Good luck to you. Okay, and keep your questions coming in for Alex on future shows, questions at com on email, or tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.